Uh, Romans chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 11 and read down through 16. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. And the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we stand here alive and sound mind with the awesome privilege of hearing your word opened up, read and taught. Lord, we pray again that you would give us discerning hearts, that you'd give us the ability to make application to what we hear, that this would add, Lord, not just to our knowledge of thy word, but to our conduct and how we respond to it. Father, we thank you that still in this late hour you're willing to save all who come to Christ, willing to take him by faith. Father, once again we pray that he would be exalted. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you for the blessings you've provided just this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but I am always fascinated to hear, especially in comparison with American westernized culture, how various cultures of the world often operate. And perhaps you've noticed, and I really like hearing from missionaries who are in different parts of the world as they face the struggle of uh, preaching the gospel to mindsets and cultures that are so dramatically different than our own. I mean, many times those social barriers present a great difficulty as people are trying to preach the gospel, and oftentimes they have to overcome the things they don't know about the culture before they can ever begin to uh, let the truth be spoken to these people in a way that they would understand. Uh, I know maybe it's because I have several missionary friends over in China. I've always, that's probably the one nation I've, I've been most interested in hearing, the differences of culture. And there are some differences. I mean, their thinking in a lot of ways is, is 180 degrees different from the West. And of course, the missionaries, some of them right, have written voluminously about that that we know, and we really like seeing their updates. For instance, let's say you were to go to China, and you were to eat a meal at somebody's house. At the end of the meal, you never, ever want to eat every single morsel of food off your plate. I know some young men in this room that would have a whale of a time with that one. But you see, in Chinese culture, it's considered rude for a hostess to not keep refilling your plate and your teacup. So at the end of a meal, if you eat everything on your plate, you're essentially saying you've done a lousy job at filling me up. And so by leaving food on your plate, you're signifying, I can't possibly eat any more, and the food was wonderful. Uh, we have had, at holiday times, relatives send us things like knife sets. In fact, one of them sitting here that has sent us knife sets. We appreciate that. You don't want to do that in China. In China, if you send somebody a sharp object, what that is is a visible symbol that you want the relationship cut off. 
And you want to end a friendship? Go buy a pair of scissors and wrap it up and mail it to them. Nothing further needs to be spoken. And of course, when you're eating a bowl of rice, you never ever want to leave your chopsticks pointing straight up. Because that uh, resembles the incense that's burned at Chinese funerals. So you leave your chopsticks sticking straight up out of your rice. That effectively says to your hostess, I hope you die. Now there's many other cultural taboos over there based on what we've heard. The Chinese concept of either saving or losing face. It's a sense of shame they have. And there's a lot of things they'll do and don't do based on that. But one I heard recently, and I've not verified this. I've never been to a Chinese hospital. But I'm told that this was the case with some they know. That, okay, so in China, it's, it's considered culturally unacceptable or rude to give bad news to a stranger. Well, you can imagine how that might affect somebody in the medical profession. And so what I'm told is at least some Chinese doctors, if they have a bad prognosis, they won't tell you. Let's say you have some terrible illness. And uh, the doctor looks at it. He says, well, he's thinking in his mind, you have six weeks to live. And so he takes you back into the meeting room and he sits you down and he says, you're going to be just fine, no need to worry. Now if you're an American, you walk down the hallway whistling Dixie and thinking that all is well when the next day the doctor calls your spouse and he tells her what's really going on so that she can tell you, so that he can save face by not having to tell you the bad news himself. Now of course we in the Western world, we recoil at that. I mean, if there's anywhere in natural existence where truth should matter, it's in matters pertaining to life and death. I mean, forget about saving face, right? Tell me like it is. But, you know, I find amazing still in our Western culture so many when it comes to the natural and spiritual and eternal realm. What they want is for somebody to deal with them like the Chinese doctor and save face by not telling things how they really are. I mean, when it comes to their physical health, they want to hear truth. But when it comes to their spiritual health, so many in our country, uh, they don't like truth anymore. They want the false prophet to cry peace when there really is no peace. I mean, it's culturally uh, you know, relevant to speak of prayer and faith and God and the Bible in sort of generic terms inclusive language that just sort of brings everybody in. But, but, you know, to talk about these things with precision, and especially if you have to say something negative, well, that just embarrasses everybody, doesn't it? I mean, that causes the megachurch pastor to lose members, and that causes the politician to lose votes. Well, I can assure you, as we go through this portion of Romans, that God that made the world is far more concerned about truth than he is about saving face. You see, he loves our soul too much to mince words and not call things what they are. Now, I've already said it, but I'm going to repeat it again because it's so vital when we go through portions of Scripture like Romans 1 through 3. But God points out human sinfulness for one primary reason. God never gives warning except that he wants men to do something about the warning. God points out human sinfulness to prepare the heart to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and you're one of those people that gets miffed when somebody actually touches your conscience and heart and begins to show you that you're a rebel against God. They show you that 
Your righteous works are like filthy rags in His sight, and you've heard nothing but His condemnation. When these things begin to uh, dismantle your flowery view of yourself, and somebody loves you enough to give vivid description of a place the Bible calls hell, and why all men deserve to go there, what is your response to that? Well, friends, keep in mind when that happens, it's because God and His heart of infinite love wants to bless you beyond what you can even fathom. He wants to wipe away that debt of sin. He wants to bring you into a covenant or a promise with Himself. He wants to declare you His child. He wants to give you power over sin in this present world. He wants you to go to glory to dwell with Him forever and experience life like you've never known it on this cursed and dying planet. And it's important to keep that in mind constantly as we walk through this passage. Now once again, we're right in the middle of the section in which mankind's condemnation is the primary focus. In chapters 1 through 3, and really two chapters worth of content, it's the second half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, the first half of chapter 3. But what we see is one long chorus of condemnation. And believe me when I tell you, I can't wait to get to chapter 3, verse 21, when there's a tremendous shift of emphasis, and it's like somebody reaches into a dark room and they flick on the light. But you know, if we're going to be faithful to hear all the counsel of God on what dwells in the human heart, we've got some more ground to cover. I mean, there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel, but we've got some more tunnel to go through before that light becomes exceeding precious. I mean, isn't it true the blacker a cave is, the lighter the light becomes? Well, it's exactly the principle we see being illustrated here. In order to give all men a chance to be saved, God has to deal really with all types of persons. And you'll remember we're in the middle of this extensive examination of one class of person. Remember who it is? It's the self-righteous moral person. It's the person who thinks I'm going to enter heaven based upon what I've done or who I am. Somehow I'm good enough, I've done enough, I'm sincere enough, but it ultimately comes back to my performance or my person is going to bring me into God's favor. And what we see in chapter 2 is God is absolutely decimating that mindset to bring this particular type of person into the knowledge of the truth. You know, there's more ink spilled on this particular type of individual than any other in this section. I find that noteworthy. There's no searching questions asked to the crowd in chapter 1. There's no detailed description of the basis on which God's going to pass judgment. No, these things are reserved for the person that believes he is good enough to enter the presence of God because of the life he's lived. And I think we can take from that, evidently, the Spirit of God suggesting that the self-righteous person is the most resistant one against seeing the truth about himself. Maybe we can talk about it some other time, but in your own life, if you belong to Christ... I'd be interested to know, as we compare backgrounds, if you came from your run-of-the-mill, flagrant, sinful background, or if you came from a background of self-righteous religion. I would wager if you came from the latter, it took more time, more effort, more scripture, and more systematic instruction to show you how wicked you were than if you were one of these people we term as a bad person. You see, really, the self-righteous man is many times the one in the most danger. 
Now, last time we discussed the four principles of God's judgment that are given in verses 1 through 16. Remember what those were? God's going to judge according to truth, okay? According to a fixed standard that is a reflection of His character. God's going to judge according to deeds. We talked about that extensively last time. That God's interested in substance and not just profession. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied and cast out demons and thy name done many wonderful works? And he says to them, Depart from me into everlasting fire. I never knew you. And he calls them ye that work iniquity. Now that's important. He's saying ye whose life was characterized by disobedience to God. We talked, obviously, somebody's not saved by what they do, but what that, do, what that does is show who they belong to. The Christian is one who's eager to prove he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about how judgment was not with, was a, without respect of persons. And fourthly, that judgment, we'll get to a little later here in the, this morning, that it's according to the gospel. And really you can view these as kind of successive doorways. One doorway opens up, judgment's according to truth, and then follows a hallway of explanation. At the end of that hallway, when we're wondering what to do, another doorway opens up. And we walk through that one, and we get another hallway of explanation, until finally we get to this fourth doorway, where that part of the discussion ends. We finished last week with that statement in verse 11, for there is no respect of persons with God. Now, if we were to fly to the final court of appeals, which is essentially the Supreme Court of Victoria, Hong Kong, now you would notice there a statue that literally would be recognized by people traveling there from all over the world. And what that statue is, is Justitia, the Roman goddess of justice, better known to us in the Western world as Lady Justice. And of course, Lady Justice is displayed usually at courthouses and public buildings like that because she's supposed to symbolize the moral equity of the judicial system. Seeing Lady Justice there supposedly reminds us that we have an intrinsic right to a fair trial and that we can expect it when we see her posted there. Interestingly enough, you'll find her displayed by statue in Switzerland, Brazil, Germany, Canada, England, Japan, the Czech Republic, Australia, the capital of Iran of all places, and the United States. Now the reason I mention this particular statue in Hong Kong is because she shows all three facets that are commonly attributed to this person, Lady Justice. Many of the statues, even the ones in America, usually only show one or two of them. <clears throat> well, here's what they are. Okay, in one hand, Lady Justice is carrying a balance scale, showing that she's going to mete out proper judgment. She's going to weigh each case, the pros and cons, and give a proper sentence. Okay, in her other hand is a sword. Well, that's not too hard to figure out. That's a picture of justice that's given to those who have uh, justly broken the law. But you know, it was in the 15th century, another feature began to be added to this person called Lady Justice, which was a blindfold. Now, most of us have heard the statement, justice is blind. And of course, what's meant by that is not that justice is stupid, or that justice is ignorant, or that justice ignores things. What that means is justice in its highest form is objective. Justice is not to be swayed by societal status, 
finances, family, personality, personal feelings, nationality, popularity, or promises to do better next time. Really, it's truth and reality and seeing things for what they really are. Now, it's interesting that even though this concept, Lady Justice, comes from a pagan goddess, and it's mixed with that, these three elements of justice across the world show, among other things, that man is indeed made in the image of God. There's tremendous truth and understanding about what justice should look like literally all over the world simply by virtue of the fact that mankind is made in God's image. Okay, the balance scale. Does God have a balance scale? We talked about it some earlier, but you know the word righteous? You, really, you know that's, that's what the word righteous means. The word righteous is a picture of a balance scale. It's things weighed. It's things put on that... Uh, that visible demonstration of truth or error and God saying this is right or this is not. You remember the pagan king Belshazzar, the night he was slain, when he saw the writing on the wall, the writing, remember what it said? Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. Well, what did tekel mean? Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And believe me, that was not a compliment. God was saying, you have been put in my scale and you're tipping the wrong side. That's where most of humanity is. Well, the sword, of course, does God execute the sword of wrath? You better believe it. How about the blindfold? Is there a truth about God that's manifested in that? Well, what is it? God is no respecter of persons. Now, I personally find it amazing. I mean, on one hand, in our free nation, we're used to a, at least a semi-free justice system. I know we cry corruption, but generally we're very blessed in the way things are carried out. But we are very prone to cry foul when we see justice miscarried. Many of you are old enough to remember the <clears throat> Pardon Gate scandal. Remember that? The final days of Bill Clinton's presidency when he pardoned 450 individuals many of whom were well-documented rogues and scoundrels. And there was a massive public outcry and an investigation. I mean, no one really cared that the president has the right to do it by the office he's given. What bothered them was the fact that justice seemed miscarried. In other words, justice respected those persons. How about the O.J. Simpson trial? I don't want to dig out that can of worms, but why was the public outcry so great? Well, maybe it was because he was a famous athlete or wealthy or chose a brilliant attorney or they found some loopholes and technicalities in the law. But whatever it was, the public perception was that justice respected persons in his case. We cry out against it and we say, no fair. But friends, the fallen human heart just can't seem to grasp the fact that God is no respecter of persons when it comes to themselves. And when it comes to eternal judgment. You ever notice that? I mean somebody can watch uh, what Bill Clinton did. Or they can watch the O.J. Simpson trial. And they can get angry. But then that same person may turn right around. And have no problem asserting. God's going to be merciful to me. Because I'm me. And what's the root of that? It starts with a P. It's pride. That's what makes man think that way. I mean, you hear it a lot of different ways. He knows my heart. I mean, I really believe something's true. I've done this or done that. I was sincere. I was a part of this or that. In other words, they're saying, 
God is going to tip things in my favor. Translation, God is going to be a respecter of persons when it comes to me. Maybe nobody else. In fact, I might get upset if God does that with somebody else. But when he comes the numero uno, things are going to work out good for me because of me. Right? That's part and parcel of the human sinful heart. You know, the self-righteous person really hides behind that argument like a hermit crab keeps going back to his shell. It's very hard to pry them away from that. Well, in verses 12 through 16, which we'll go through quickly, this argument that God's going to tip things in my favor is ripped to shreds by illustrating the fact that God will not judge the Gentile world and the Jews on the same scale. And we have to be careful how we explain this. Okay, some judgment is on the same scale. Some is not. Now let's first set up the proper application. Okay, remember back in those days when Paul said Jew and Gentile? He was speaking to the Gentiles as a class of people who really had no Bible knowledge. And then you had the Jews who had been the possessors of the Scriptures for generations. And so they really divided neatly into two categories of people who had the Word of God and knew it and people who did not. Now it's not quite so easy to make that delineation today. But we can make application by saying the difference in which God will handle those who had or could have had the written word of God and those who could not have had it. <coughs> and here's the point he's making. On the final day of judgment, I mean, part of the reason those books are opened is to take into account not only the, the degree to which men rebelled against God, but comparing that with what they did or what they could have known. It's not just one big mixing bag. God's going to consider all the factors. And what we're talking about is the way God, when He meets out judgment or punishment at the last day. This is talking about those who are finally lost. Now, I don't know about you, but I rejoice in God's equitable dealings. Have you ever thought that certain things are not fair in life? I think we all have. Have you ever looked at the spiritual privilege you have and you, and you thought, Lord, it's really not fair that... Whether they're in another country or our country. I mean, they're raised in a home that they're taught to hate God. They're, they're stuffed into the school system and off to the so-called brilliant professors at the major university and taught that they came from primordial soup uh, by, by way of chimpanzee. And I've looked at that sometimes and said, it's really not fair that that person should be condemned to the same degree as somebody who sat in church and had the Bible and rejected the truth they were given. And you know what? That's part of our moral character God gave us, and we are correct in saying that. Let me give you an illustration this way. Let's say you have two sons. Okay? Son number one, you tell him, son, don't touch the cookie jar on the kitchen counter. Okay, son number two, you don't tell him anything. The next day you find both boys up to their elbows with the cookies half gone that you're going to be feeding the company last, last, uh, th th that night. And so both boys go out to the woodshed and get convinced of their error. Now, how many injustices have you committed? It's not one you've committed, you've committed two. Okay, on the one hand, you have condemned or punished this one for truth that he never had opportunity to have known. You held him accountable for something you didn't give him. But the other one, you gave him a privilege that the other one didn't have, but then you judged him by the same scale. You see? 
Uh, in both cases, you've respected persons. You see, that was how the mindset of the Jews worked. God can condemn them, but when it comes to me, He has to judge me on the same scale and bless me. I mean, I must know these things because I'm so smart. Well, that is absolutely not how God will judge. For as many as have sinned without law, that means those that have transgressed God who were not in possession of the written word of God. They had no Bible, they had no preachers, they didn't have that kind of revelation. What's going to happen? Okay, they're going to perish without law. You realize if somebody's lost and they never had a Bible, the written word of God will not even be opened to condemn them because God knows they could have never had it. They perish without law because they sin without law. God's going to judge them and condemn them based upon something that they actually had. And we'll get to more of that in a minute. What about the other? Those that sin in the law. That means these people knew what they were doing. They knew what God had said. They are judged how? By the law. So in that type of person, every avenue of truth open to him is going to be brought as a witness against him. Every jot and tittle of the Scriptures, not just that he knew that he could have known. I wonder if there's many today that think I'm going to stay out of church, I'm going to stay away from the Bible, because after all, knowledge increases responsibility. And the more I know, the more I'm accountable to know. But here's the deal. You're not just accountable for what you know, you're accountable for what you should know, and God knows what that is. There are places where ignorance is most certainly not bliss, and this is one of them. God in His omniscience knows what we could have known had we actually looked for the truth. So every jot and tittle of the Scriptures, every warning from a Christian, every sermon, every tract is going to be brought out on Judgment Day, essentially placed in that witness box and brought in as a witness. Oh, you, you didn't know, did you? Can you imagine what this is going to be like? Now really, this is one of the passages, and there's others, for teaching there are indeed degrees of hell. Hell is still hell, don't get me wrong. There's no pleasant section. But there are many passages you can go to to put a, out a good case of the fact that hell is not the same hell for everybody. The person who sins without law, transgresses against less light, is going to be in not as bad of a section as the person who flagrantly went against everything he was told. And believe me, that will be brought to light. Now notice in verses 13 to 15, it's in parentheses, because here's what's happening, okay? Paul's anticipating the argument from Mr. Self-Righteous. He already knows what the guy's thinking, and he does this many times in the book of Romans. He begins to deal with his conscience, and immediately the man's coming back with a question, going, yeah, but, 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 but. And really, you can tell what the implied argument is by reading what he says. Here's the argument from Mr. Self-Righteous. But... I'm familiar with the Scriptures in Old Testament history. My proximity to religion and religious people, I mean, surely that counts for at least some points. I mean, don't I get something for osmosis? Don't I get something for the fact that I know who Jonah was and, and I know about the ark and how long it was and, and I know the Beatitudes and I know the Ten Commandments? Don't I get something for that? 
Paul essentially saying, no, uh, no, you don't. So this Gentile, this Jew saying, how dare you paint me in a worse light than that savage Gentile? I mean, do you see how ignorant he is? Uh, you see how clueless he is about the things of God? I think we saw some of this right around the time of the American independence, of some of the attitude of at least some of the established Christian denominations and how they treated the Indian people. If you would have told some of these proud Church of England members who had been in that denomination for 14 generations with their family or whatever it was, and you pointed out to this savage Indian who had just scalped somebody and had the thing hanging on his belt, and you said, guess what? You are fundamentally more condemned than him. Can't you see his reaction? Me? Look at my clothes. Look at what I know. Look at who my parents are. Look at him. And Paul's saying, well, let me explain something to you. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. In other words, he's saying, sir, let me tell you something. God doesn't give a hill of beans what you know or claim to know. God's interested in what you do with what you know. And the difference is as wide as the sea. You remember what James said writing to Christian people? But be doers of the word and not hearers only. And what's the next sentence? Deceiving your own self. Now tell me, if, if Christian people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God have the capacity to deceive their own selves and, and to exalt what they know above what they do, do you think that is a trait in the human heart by somebody who doesn't know God at all? Absolutely is. So he runs back to that and says, well, well, well look what I know. Friends, the moment you know something that's justly required of you by God, you are responsible to keep that obligation without fail permanently. And that's what the law does. I mean, for this Jew, his knowledge of the law, what did it make him? Did it make him wealthy in God's sight? No, it made him what Paul calls a debtor. You see, that's what the law was written for. I mean, what does the law do? The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was to show us our depravity so that we could truly be converted. In other words, it was to show this man, despite his knowledge, how miserably he lived in comparison to what he knew. I mean, you ever run into somebody? I, I actually have. You probably have too if you think about it. Here's somebody who will commit the same sin as somebody over here. But they actually reason because they know better. They're more equipped to sin in moderation. And therefore, uh, not as susceptible to go to excess. So it's really justifiable for them to do what they're doing. But they'll turn right around and blow this guy out of the water for doing it. What do you think the sale of indulgences was in so-called church history? I throw out my shekel so I can go sin. I know it's wrong and I acknowledge that, but I enjoy it. And as long as I know it's wrong, that's okay. God says no. To know it's wrong and act like it's not wrong brings condemnation. So in other words, he's trying to get this person to seek a righteousness outside of himself. By saying, no, not the, not the hearers of the law, but the doers. Have you done the whole law? Have you kept it all? Well, I just broke a few. Well, you're debtor to keep it all, sir. And if you break one, says James, you broke them all. And what does that make you? A sinner. 
It's interesting to see people's reaction. I don't do it all the time, but you know how the logic goes. You, you begin to probe somebody, and are you? I remember I, was, I actually had to stop from laughing because there was actually a young lady working in this gospel booth down in Oregon. There were several of us around, but somebody came up to her, and she began to probe their soul, and she said, well, are you a good person to God, and inside of God, thing? And the guy says, oh, absolutely. She said, have you ever told a lie? He said, no. She said, oh, so this must be your first time. I thought that was classic. But often you ask people that question, are you a liar? Uh-uh. You ever told a lie? Well, yeah. What does that make you? A liar. Uh, you know, you ever hated anybody? Yeah. What does that make you? A, a murderer? I, so in other words, you're a living, thieving, adulterous, blasphemous, rebellious, God-hating, Sabbath-breaking, parent-despising murderer. Well, isn't that nice? But that's what has to happen, you see. And the self-righteous person is going to try to evade that whole time. Well, that's not me. Well, that, that, that's them. And he's saying, no, that's you. Forget about everybody else. But you know, the fact that uh, this man was accountable to keep the light of what he knew, that's even true of the Gentile world. All right, now we go back to the Gentiles. Those who, and again, make the application today, those who don't have the written scriptures. And that number of people is diminishing, but there are still people in the world that largely are in spiritual darkness for a lot of reasons. Now, how is it righteous for those people to perish without the law? On what basis would a righteous judge possibly judge them if they didn't know? I mean, if they've not been privileged with the written word of God, and listen to this, by God's sovereign design. I mean, do you realize there are people in the world that God in His sovereign and perfect knowledge has not given them the Scriptures? I don't understand that entirely. But that's part of God's omniscience, and we've got to cling to His character. God knows what it's going to take to shake some people out of slumber. And apparently some people do better in a culture and have greater chance to come to the knowledge of the truth when they don't have a Bible and they're going off of something else. We've got to be careful saying that. But this is not that they had a Bible and decided they wanted something better. It's they didn't have it. For one reason or another, they didn't have that light given to them. Now we already talked about in Romans 1 of natural revelation, the fact that well, as it says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, that there's no speech nor language where their voice isn't heard. God speaks universally to all classes and all cultures simply by the things He's made. And He says man's without excuse because of those things He sees on the outside. Now, if you were to take a person who is blind and deaf and then get this massive high-definition video screen and put it in front of them and, and just show beautiful images one after another, and then hold them accountable for what was on that screen, would that be just? Well, no, because they don't have the capacity to comprehend what's on that screen. You see, God didn't just paint the world with His glory to speak to the human heart. He also, what we're going to see in this passage, gives the capacity within to understand and to make right judgment based on the things that God has made. Remember we saw in Romans 1 that God witnesses to every single person. Remember that? God speaks to them all. And here we're going to see more of how. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which 
have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. Now think about this. This is coming from a man who had traveled the known world extensively. And what he's doing really is appealing to this man's natural mind saying, you've seen it too. How do you explain the fact that this nation over here that you call Gentile dogs has a complex moral code? Many of those things are things that God has said, and yet they've never seen a Bible. He's saying, how do you explain that? All right, When the Gentiles, they do by nature the things contained in the law. In other words, it's an observable characteristic that the general Gentile nations intrinsically follow some sort of moral code. Now tell me, history buffs, is that true? Can you find any examples of ancient civilizations with a moral code? You'd be hard-pressed to find ones that didn't have one. I remember sitting in history class under the tutelage of a teacher who was anything but friendly and sympathetic towards Christianity. And I remember from that class learning about the Code of Hammurabi. And you remember Hammurabi was a Babylonian king? And uh, they love to point out the fact that there's similarities with the Code of Hammurabi, which was discovered in 1901, and the Law of Moses. But see, here's the rub. Uh, the Code of Hammurabi is dated accurately three centuries before the Law of Moses. And what the liberal loves to point out is there's a lot of similarities between the Code of Hammurabi and the Mosaic Law. Most notably, the statement probably all of us know, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Remember that? Well, Hammurabi wrote that long before Moses penned it in the Mosaic Law. And so what they do is they come out and say, well, obviously Moses plagiarized it. Well, you know, that claim has been largely abandoned in more recent years because you know what they found? They have found several other complex legal and moral codes from civilizations that predate Hammurabi by centuries. And they carry other similar characteristics. But here's the thing. First of all, God would have spoken to the Jews in a language they were familiar with. He does that to us today. Okay? Uh... I'm talking to you about the Bible. That means book. That's what that word means. Now the fact that somebody else invented that word, does that mean we don't understand what it means and we should stop using the word Bible? You see what I mean? God has always dealt with humanity that way. But you see some key differences between Hammurabi's code and Moses's. You know what it is? Moses's is a vertical system and Hammurabi's is horizontal like all the rest of them. In other words, Moses takes into account the fact there is a God, there is a sinful uh, nature in the human heart, we are accountable to a Creator, you can only be right with your fellow man when you're right with God, and none of those other codes include that. In fact, only the law of Moses from those ancient times in that area gives provision for forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? But here's what these various moral law codes prove. They prove what Paul's saying, that Gentiles do by nature the things contained in the law. How about another example? Ancient Egypt. If you were to open to chapter 125 of the Book of the Dead, which was a funeral text from ancient Egypt, you would find prohibitions against the following things. Now listen to this list. No blasphemy. Defiling the purity of a sacred place. 
tampering with the grain measure, boundaries of fields or plummets of balance, theft and murder, exploitation of the weak and causing injury, depriving orphans of their property, causing pain and grief, doing injury, causing hunger, lying, adultery, ignoring the truth, slander, aggression, eavesdropping, losing one's temper, and speaking without thinking. These are the moral codes of a pagan nation that had utterly rejected the God of the Jews. But isn't it interesting they've come up with that list? Well, how about across the pond, okay? How about way far away from the Jewish influence? The ancient Aztecs, the area of Mexico. Do you know that they, in their moral code, among other things, they actually wrote about immorality, adultery, was a type of, they actually call it filth. And they said it was a filth that would disrupt your balance of life, cause decay, cause problems, cause the breakdown of the family, and cause that filth to pollute other people. Now tell me, did the human brain just come up with that on his own? No, he didn't. Well, he says, and really we could go on and on with these illustrations, but he says, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. That means they're proving by what they do outwardly that they're not left without at least some witness to the truth. That's what these moral law codes prove. They have at least some inward testimony of right and wrong. All right, now what is it? Verse 15, we see three key words. He speaks of their heart, their conscience, and their thoughts. He says they show the work of the law written on their heart. And that's not the word heart, the mushy emotions we think of. It's more of what we would call the mind in our culture. In other words, they may not like it. In fact, they may hate it. But imprinted on their mind is this intrinsic sense of what God has said concerning moral issues. As made in the image of God, they have that moral character stamped upon their very being. Alright, secondly, their conscience also bearing witness. Now, conscience is that faculty of self-judgment that weighs in on your actions and gives you peace for doing right and gives you guilt and shame uh, for doing wrong. You know, in God's perfect administration, isn't it fitting that every single person is forced to make moral judgment constantly on his own actions? I, I can't help but think in Revelation 6 when that great mass of humanity is up there crying out for the rocks to hide them and they're saying the great day of His wrath has come. How did they know it was coming? For many of those people, it was the voice of conscience because they were able to make the deduction, this moral voice within me saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. The logical flow of thought from that is what? There has to be a day of reckoning. And conscience is not something to be lightly despised. The Bible has much to say about it. You look at the time period in the Bible between the fall and the Garden of Eden and the flood. That was the ruling factor. You know, there was no civil government during that era. That wasn't instituted until after the flood. This ruling force of conscience was strong enough. It actually held society together until it got so polluted over time that God added the death penalty after the flood. Absolutely amazing. Now, I was reading an article yesterday written by an atheist. It's entitled Theories of the Moral Man, and no, I don't recommend it. Lengthy article written with an air of scholarliness and uh, well thought out to a point. But I just I didn't read the whole thing. I just skimmed it to see his major points of argument. But, of course, he's trying to prove that the history of morality and conscience in humanity is something that evolved over time. Well, you're hard-pressed to do that one, sir. 
Here's how he opens with his paragraph. Okay, this is an atheist talking about the existence of conscience in humankind. He says, there are a few subjects on which so much solemn nonsense has been written as on the nature of conscience and moral law. Well, I agree with that. There is no other phenomenon of the human mind of which it is possible to give so simple and natural an explanation. You know, the sad irony is there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. The problem is the deductions he makes from it are astronomically off base. I would agree with them that it's easy to pinpoint where the moral uh, fabric and conscience came from, but it's not from the primordial soup. It came from being made in the image of God, which is a truth, by the way, that evolution cannot possibly explain. And then he says their thoughts, the mean, while accusing or excusing one another. So here's what that means, okay? At the same time, they have the law written on their mind, and then they have the faculty of conscience, which is giving moral judgment in instantaneously on their actions throughout their life. They also have their thoughts, which is their faculty of rational judgment, going all of the time. And what those thoughts are doing is they're accusing or excusing one another. In other words, they're able to make rational and righteous judgments based on the actions of others, whether that's writing like the philosophers did, whether that's pronouncing judgment in the court system, whether that's in discussions in the marketplace. In other words, society is held together and actually functions because of their faculty of judgment, which allows them to make right deductions on things that are right and wrong, even though they never had a Bible. But the point Paul's making on that is not, oh, I uh, feel sorry for those people. We ought to be compassionate and want to teach them the truth. But when it comes to the day of judgment, Paul's contention is not they didn't know. His contention is the moral law they kept and the life they tried to live proves they had some light. And had they lived up to it, they would have been shown more truth. Really, Romans 1 and 2 give the complete picture of how God could condemn men who have never seen a Bible. And it's not because God's not just. It's precisely because He is just that that's going to happen. Verse 16, and we're done. All right, really, this is back to a continuation of verse 12. Okay, they've sinned in the law, they'll perish without law. They've sinned in the law, they're going to be judged by the law. And then there's a parenthetical section, then we get to verse 16. Okay, when's that going to happen? In the day... When God shall judge. And again, there's three statements made here regarding that judgment. Okay, first of all, what's he going to judge? That day of judgment is not a day of appearances. It's a day of secrets. God says he's going to judge the secrets of men. All the pomp and splendor and pretense is going to be ripped away. And only the reality of the inner man is going to remain. Friends, this is, this is intended to produce at least some sort of fear. And tell me, who is there on this planet who gives any time of rational thought to this? The fact that God's going to go into His inner man and, and expose all of the thoughts and desires of His inmost soul. All of the things He's been sweeping under the rug, and all of the things He's been trying to pretend are not there, and all the dirty little secrets that He's not told anybody, the day is coming, God says, when He's going to pull those secrets out before the noonday light of God's omniscience and say, here's what you are. 
And this is speaking primarily of those who don't know Christ. You see what he's doing to this guy? He's just bringing wave after wave saying, oh, we think about this. And how about this? And look at who you are here. And consider what God's going to do here. He's going to judge the secrets of men. He's going to do it by Jesus Christ. And you think what that meant to this Jew? That, that, that guy, that, that rebel we crucified? And Paul's saying, let me tell you something. He may have died a symbol of weakness. But when he rose from that grave, like you know he did. He's now dwelling at the right hand of his Father in heaven in a regal splendor and a terrifying glory. And someday, when all judgment's committed to the Son, the one who's going to consign your sorry carcass into the lake of fire is the same one you crucified. What's the application of today? People have to understand Jesus is judge. How do most people view the Trinity in our culture? Tell me. Okay, you got God the Father. He's sort of the one with the white hair. And, uh, you know, he's the one that was in the bad mood in the Old Testament all the time. You know, he appeared in thunder and lightnings, and, and he was mainly Old Testament. And, well, the Holy Spirit, see, he's this sort of indescribable electric force. And whatever we can't understand in life, we, we blame it on him. Well, Jesus, you know, uh, he's the effeminate little hippie in the white robe that carries the lamb and... He's sort of a limp-wristed sweetie who will never speak bad about anybody and he'll always let me into heaven and do everything I say and give me what I ask. Do you think our culture looks at him that way? Absolutely. But here's what has to be brought home to their conscience. The lamb is the lion. The meek and lowly one is the glorious one. The one who took sin upon himself is going to be the one who boots sin out of the universe. And it's Jesus men are going to face all right. But for most, that's not a very pretty picture. And he says he's going to judge according to my gospel. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about that, but my gospel isn't delineated from others. Some people think this is another fifth gospel somewhere that's written. You know, it's not what he's saying. He calls it my gospel because he's identifying with it. It's not my truth, your truth. I mean, you say that today. Well, let me tell you, my gospel, people are going to go, perfect, I have mine, you have yours, we're good. No, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, let me tell you the gospel that's true, that saved my soul, that's transformed the course of my eternity, that I preach and that I stand for and that I'm willing to die for, and I identify it so much, I call it mine. Good perspective. But men are going to be judged by the gospel. In other words, okay, we talked about when punishment is handed out, it's on the basis of what? Life, uh, light given or rebellion committed. But when it comes to who is going to be at what judgment, when it comes to who is on the Lord's side, there's one dividing line, and that is the gospel. Just like back in the day of the Passover, the Lord says, when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over. Those that are outside are killed of the firstborn. Those that are inside, I'm going to pass over. When the day of judgment comes, it's going to be the central question. What have you done with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have the proper sacrifice? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? What have you done with Jesus? Have you 
fallen on that stone and been broken? Or is the stone waiting to fall on you and grind you to powder? Because one of the two is going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, let me close by asking this. Are you prepared personally for that day? When the secrets will be drug out? All the pretense is put away. Substance is what matters in reality that God's interested in. And Jesus takes His place upon that throne. And an account is given for your life. Which judgment are you going to face? Is it going to be the judgment of the righteous? Those that belong to Jesus and they're judged on the basis of rewards? Or are you still bringing the wrong offering? You know, the wrong offerings as old as humanity. You know, the, the way of Cain is called in the New Testament. One of the earliest passages. What happened? Cain brought the fruit of the ground. Now, what, what was wrong with the fruit of the ground? I mean, Cain, he worked hard to grow that, didn't he? The problem was, that wasn't the sacrifice God ordained. You know, years ago in the, in the Mormon temple, in one of the first issues of the Godmakers, you can read about this, Ed Decker, who was part of the Melchizedek priesthood high up in Mormonism, he actually went on a tour of the Mormon temple, and he, he testified, he was, he, was, he was just aghast, he couldn't believe it. There in the, in the foyer of that building was this huge sculpture of a man bringing fruit and vegetables and placing them on an altar. And he said he was horrified when he saw that, and he said, that's, that's Cain's offering. And he said, that statue disappeared within a month. Cain's offering represents bringing something other than what God says. You come by way of the blood of the Lamb. You come by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you'll be at the wrong judgment. And that other judgment isn't based on how good you've been. It's based on how bad you've rebelled. Because the people at the great white throne, mercy and goodness are past tense. There's nothing left but sorrow and gnashing of teeth. But if you're still breathing, you have opportunity to cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Is that the state of your soul? Is it really? Forget about what other people think. Forget about who thinks you've been baptized or who's counted you a Christian for years. Listen, in that day, nobody else's opinion is going to matter. There's going to be one opinion, and it's the one whose eyes are a flame of fire who's seated on that throne. And if you're not saved in his opinion, you're finished. Let's pray. And Father, I thank you that you do love truth. And Father, we by nature really don't like a lot of facets about it. We love to talk about heaven and blessing and peace and joy and healing, but Lord, it's a sinful planet. And we are sinful people. And Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful physician who gives the prognosis just like it is. Father, I pray for those here. Lord, you know if there's some sitting here that are even wondering if they've believed on Christ. Lord, you know if they're here. I pray, God, that you would not let them rest. Give them such vexation of soul until that central question is asked, what have they done with Christ? Have they been washed in His cleansing blood? Do they belong to Him? I pray, Lord, you'd show them the forgiveness that you give the new life you want to give them. Father, thank you for your constant mercy and that you've extended it for so long. In Jesus' name, amen.